the Mighty Waters podcast, helping you unlock the power of your people. Hello and welcome to the Mighty Waters podcast. My name is Marae Toyne and you're listening to Millennial Voices episode 3. You might be wondering why millennials if you haven't already listened to episode 1 and 2. Well, by 2020, those born between 1990 and 2000 are going to make up 50% of the workforce. Although most of this generation is already at work and loads of research and studies have shown that millennials have needs and desires for the workplace not yet met by many companies. So one could conclude that in order to stay competitive and attain as well as retain millennial talent, It's crucial for organisations to adapt and change in order to provide an environment where this generation can thrive. I'm interested in knowing what that kind of workplace looks like, what should leaders consider changing and what is it actually that millennials want. I've read and written a lot on this topic so if you're interested you can download my Millennials at Work white paper completely free via the Mighty Waters website and I've also put the link in the description to this episode. But this podcast series is all about going on the ground and asking millennials themselves about their thoughts on different aspects of the workplace. And in this episode, I speak with the bubbly and passionate Mira Raikondalia, all about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. We discuss her own experiences of diversity and inclusion, specifically in the digital sector, and whether diversity and inclusion really matters to millennials. We go from speaking about language to unconscious biases to interesting real-life examples. And at the end, Mira proposes some fantastic three top tips that every company should consider when thinking about diversity and inclusion in their workplace. So let's get straight to it. Here is my chat with Mira. Hi, Mira. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for joining the Mighty Waters podcast. We met back in 2015. Yeah, um, oh my goodness, <laughs> twenty fifteen. Um, at with New Entrepreneurs Foundation, which is like an entrepreneurs program. Yeah, which we did back then. Um, but just tell um our listeners a bit about you and where you're from, yeah. what you're doing, what you're up to. Sure. Well, yo, thanks for inviting me on this podcast. Um, it's my first podcast, so uh, really <laughs> scary, but also really really excited. So I'm born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, and um, moved to London at the age of 13. And I have um, an Indian background. I have a quite an interesting experience in terms of like my schooling, actually. My first school I went to, my primary school, was in Nairobi, and funnily was a, a posh English private school. Then, and then when I moved to London, um, I went to the complete opposite school. It was like an inner city London state school. <sighs> Bit of a culture a shock. Huge culture shock, I know. Like it was the funniest thing was when um, we were in school in Nairobi, we had to like curtsy every time we walked past a teacher. Um, wow. And I did that when I moved to my school in London and everyone looked at me like I was a complete <laughs> weirdo. That was not the case at all. Um, and my parents were like terrified of me being in the school. So they actually moved me to um, a selective sixth form um, after my GCSEs. Three schools, three very different experiences. Um, and I was kind of thrown into many different cultures from, from quite quite a young age. Um, and it's definitely, definitely really, really shaped me as a person. Wow. Yeah. That's diverse. <laughs> yeah. My favourite was the inner city London school, by the way. Was it? Yeah, by far. Yeah, it was so much fun. <laughs> it was just... Why is that? More space to be a little bit naughty. Um, <laughs> but also just the people you met where you're just like slapped in the face by 
hundreds of different people from like just thousands of different backgrounds and it was exciting and interesting to see like our classroom of 30 people had like 25 different cultures within wow. them so it was it was you don't feel like a minority at all like everyone was was from somewhere somewhere different and everyone somewhere. embraced it and wore on their yeah. sleeves and it was it's really exciting actually really cool yeah. that's awesome yeah so um mira work-wise you recently left um, maddox events uh, where you're working as a commercial lead for the women in tech series mm-hmm. and you're about to kind of work on a new venture which prepares 13 to 17 year olds uh, for a career in the digital sector. So you're clearly I've done, <laughs> you're so passionate about digital. Uh, how, how did you end up there? Funnily, I've never really tried to get into a career in digital. Um, I never thought about it as an option um, as I'm actually not very technical at all. So I just happened to accidentally fall into it. I think it's just through my career. So my career has been very people focused, very sales focused, very um, relationship building focused. And through many different jobs, I've been working with and for tech companies. Um, And it became very apparent for me to see that tech and digital is all around us. Um, So whether you're a bank, a retailer, a construction company, or even a small business, um, you are influenced and impacted by tech every day. Mm. So it is the sector that has and will impact the most people. And for that reason is where I really want to be. Um, just to clarify, I'm in the business of ensuring people from different backgrounds are empowered to contribute and shape the fastest growing industry in the UK, which is tech and digital. Um, and what I've done over the last two years, as you mentioned with Maddox, is help run large scale conferences um, to empower women in the tech sector. And now uh, my next step and what I want to do now is working um, with schools, mm-hmm. um, particularly disadvantaged schools. Um, schools like the inner city state London school that I went to um, to empower young people for into careers um, in tech uh, by connecting them with relevant corporates and creating a talent pipeline that goes directly from the schools to the companies whether that's through apprenticeships um, or anything else but I'll talk about that later a bit later on cool um, but just to kind of sum that up I was never meant to go into tech I happened to fall into it because a lot of my clients were that, were, were that way inclined um, and I just understood the impact you can have and the impact that sector is going to have in have has in our in our, in our economy currently, um, and then then connecting people um, in a relevant way as well is what I'm interested in. Awesome. <laughs> um, so obviously you've mentioned kind of your diverse background and then this mm. interest in digital. Um, as a millennial, but not yeah. only a millennial, <laughs> but as a woman um, of Indian ethnic background, yeah. working in the digital sector with kind of clients you know tech and what has your experience been of diversity inclusion so I think before we get into that answer um maybe it's really important to define exactly what diversity and inclusion is um because I'm very conscious of the fact that um to most people it sounds like a fancy business buzzword yeah to make companies look good <laughs> um which in all fairness it is if not done well and if the right people aren't pushing and driving it um so just to kind of go into a quote that I think that di- that di- defines diversity and inclusion really well is um, diversity is being invited to the party inclusion is being asked to dance mm, so yeah so without you, you can have as much diversity as you want you can pretend to employ as many people from many different backgrounds without really understanding why you're doing so but if you're not including them in the right ways they will leave and you're not creating safe spaces for them I want to go into that a little bit more but I think that quote and I'm going to say it again 
diversity is being invited to the party while inclusion is being asked to dance um it's something that we should you know be aware of kind of moving forward in this in this in this podcast um but yeah i'm i'm quite early in my career so i'm i'm 25 years old i've i've been in quite a few jobs actually three jobs to be precise um and i've never really thought of myself as an indian ethnic woman in the workplace mm. and i'm sure most people don't either no one thinks oh i'm from this background therefore this is me and this is my identity in the workplace mm. um and it's only until very recently that i have been thinking about what it is for me to be an indian woman in the workplace i'm um, specifically millennial so just to kind of give you like a little bit of a story um around this as well um my job's always been very client facing um so i jump on the call try make a sale and generally go for loads and loads of face to face meetings i've been all around the world to like you know be in client meetings whether it's the boardroom of uber hsbc these kind of companies um and i'd most of the time arrange the meetings that was my job um and run the meetings and i normally take uh, a colleague who was usually male with me um just because that's how the company um that's that's who, who my colleague was and every time i'd go into this meeting even though the meeting was mainly about gender diversity um and i go into the meeting room the the meeting and the the client is always directing questions to my to my colleague um. who is you know a white male yeah um despite the fact that i a woman had you know come had had arranged this meeting um i i, I see that a lot so this is just slight nuances you you kind of understand and you start to feel in, yeah. in the workplace luckily my colleague was great and he would um <laughs> he would he would he was very aware of it and would push all the questions towards me and make it very clear that i'm directing the meeting what happens when when that's not the case what happens yeah. when your colleague wants to take all the credit what happens when um it happens in larger in, in larger contexts where you know, you're running a company and people don't leave or you're very junior in a company and um other people are given credit for your work and you can't speak up about it because you might not be as confident so for me it's not been too bad but there are certain situations that i can pinpoint where i have to work double as hard or be more confident or really kind of shout out louder for the same results as a male counterpart would would have in the workplace yeah um, so i'm not sure if you if you if you felt similar things so when i met with a interestingly sort of on the same lines when i met with a lady who was very high up working in the civil service and she met with me when i just graduated and i was kind of umming and ahhing about all my career uh kind of opportunities and possibilities mm. and she said she asked me what i felt was my kind of worst characteristic or my mm. you know the classic interview question that everyone hates and i said that oh, i i often can be a bit bossy and she stopped me the minute i said that and she says bossy is a word that women get told when they're being authoritative and decision makers agree with that right yeah. and we get told that's bossy and it's a negative thing whereas men get told that it's a lead yeah. you know it's it's a quality of a leader and that was the first time i'd really been challenged on the words that i use and mm. the the connotations that they have i'd never even thought about it um this this language is like is really important i'm going to touch upon that as well yeah. a little bit later but um like another thing is i don't want to kind of talk about the organization specifically but i was in this organization where i was the only woman of color and someone asked me counterpart so same level as me said oh you're here to tick a diversity quota and it was said in jest you know oh you, you know but i wow me like in that moment yeah. was like maybe like maybe, maybe I, i am, am. yeah maybe i am here because i'm filling a diversity quota and that 
your confidence just shatters in that in that moment and you don't want you you don't want to argue it but you don't want you you become defensive and then you it plays in your mind and it's always played in my mind am i am i just a diversity quote am i just filling a diversity quota so it's also really care you have to be really careful about you know quotas things like that but making people feel really valued and making them feel that they're there because they deserve to be there yeah um your quote was diversity is being invited to the party and mm. inclusion is being asked to dance how do you think um the, from your experience, how do you think the digital sector measures up to that? In all honesty, I think it's very difficult to measure inclusion. Because mm. inclusion is a feeling. You can't say... There's no statistic around how you feel in the workplace. But people try. People don't think that's important because it's, it's, it's something that's un, untangible. Um, but what it does essentially when you have an inclusive workplace is it makes people want to work harder. It makes people more motivated because you feel like you belong. Everywhere you belong, you want to contribute to, right? So the importance of inclusion is probably one of the most important things in, in, in the workplace. And about 40% of companies don't want to deal with diversity and inclusion because they think they don't have enough time. If you don't have enough time, that means you know your workers aren't productive enough because they don't feel included. <laughs> so it's a really, really important, um, interesting question that you've asked here. But what I want to go into is actually describing what the general state of diversity and inclusion is in the digital sector yeah. by starting off by talking about a recent study by EY. Um, they launched this on International Women's Day this year, uh, something called the Press for Progress movement. Um, and it's a campaign um, that shows that it will take 216 years to achieve gender parity if we carry on with the current rate of change in the workplace right now. 216 years. Wow. Um, there are also more, C- more CEOs named David than there are female CEOs in the FTSE 500. Um, Sorry, carry on. No, for sure. And then just taking, and that's just taking into account gender diversity, right? These mm. are statistics I'm telling you about gender diversity. And we have been talking about gender diversity in the workplace for the last 20 and 30 years. So actions have been taken to, to solve, these, solve these issues. We've barely started talking about intersectionality and race and class and sexuality these things we've just started talking about. So we don't even have like that much like statistics on it. And the, the, the problems to be solved is just so vast. So the answer to like, what's the general state of diversity and inclusion in the workplace? I think it's superficial the way it's, being, it's been thrown around right now. Um, and also we are miles behind achieving equality um, to the level that we need it to be. Mm. Um, so for example, you know, just 17% of tech specialists in the UK um, were, are women. And that was from a study in 2015. Um, 40% of people think there is a double standard against hiring women. Um, and blind applications actually lead to five times more women um, coming in through the interview process. Um, wow. In America, African-Americans are 16% likely to get invited to job interviews. Um, so there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of statistics that I can, I can throw around yeah. and talk about. Um, but I think it's more important to ask, you know, what are the benefits of a diverse and inclusive workplace? Okay. Like, what can we achieve by having diverse and inclusive workplaces? Because we can talk about the problems forever. We know, we know it exists. That's why we're here. That's yeah. why we're here talking about it. But we need to understand what the importance is and how do we move forward from that. Yeah. So, for example, you know, gender diverse companies are more likely to perform 15% better. Ethnically diverse companies are more likely to perform 35% better. Hmm. You know... It's really important for our workforce to reflect our customer base. Um, and this quote, which is actually more in the lines of spirituality, and something I picked up on, is 
creativity is the ability to expose yourself to as much as possible. And that is with everything. In the workplace, you're exposed to many different ideas, many different backgrounds. That's how you be creative. That's how you can become creative. That's how you can innovate. That's how you can stay competitive. Mm. Um, so we know there's an issue and the, the state of diversity is not where it needs to be in the, in, in, in the tech sector at all. It's probably the, one of the worst in the tech sector. Um, but it's really important to understand why it's important. You know, it's not just a moral issue, which it is, of course, but it's more about, you know, companies can really benefit from this. We can really start to innovate. We can really start to solve social immobility problems, things like that, if we really take it into consideration. And then now we need to work out how we actually do that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes yeah. sense. Um, just want to touch on a thing you just said around mm. the customer base um, and the company reflecting the customer base. Um, do you have an example of when that has happened or hasn't happened, worked well or not worked well? Yeah, totally. So um, something pops into mind. I think this is quite a famous example, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> it's so when Apple and I can't remember the exact date, by the way. So please don't hold me to hold me to this. But when Apple re- launched their health app a few years ago, I think it was in 2014, potentially. Um, they had such a male heavy engineering team that they actually completely missed out the menstrual, uh, a menstru- menstrual cycle in, in the health app. Now, the menstrual cycle affects 50% of their customer base. If you're a woman, that is like number one priority in terms of a health app that you would need. Like, <laughs> yeah, do, yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. But they completely missed it out on their, on their first prototype because they didn't have anyone even thinking about that. Something so basic, right? Now, think about the world and what we've forgotten or missed out in a, le- in a more subtle form than it does for women in our engineering, in our cities. So if, if we start to like, re, if we had to like deconstruct the entire world and start building cities from scratch and start building cars from scratch um, where men and women were equally represented, represented through history, I think everything would look very different. That's I know that's really conceptual. Yeah. Um, but like another example is like navigation apps, right? I don't know if it's just me, but I cannot work, I can never work navigation apps. Like when it tells me to turn right in 300 yards, I have no idea what 300 yards means, right? <laughs> it turns out that women don't work in that way with their mind in terms of distances. And if you said something along the lines of in 300 yards, turn right the Tesco, that would work much better for women. But if there was more women in engineering teams and when, when, you're, when you're testing products, yeah. so essentially the products that we're building aren't inclusive, because the teams are building them aren't diverse. In an ideal world, what would you say, what do you believe a diverse and inclusive workplace looks like? So to build a diverse and inclusive workplace, I think you have to look at both diversity and inclusion as two separate things that complement each other. So the first is diversity, and that is, that's very measurable. So how do you actually become more diverse? And that's by diversity sourcing. So the things you could do there is um, up the ante on diversity branding. So make sure that your website, your careers page focuses on diversity, you know, sponsor conferences that are relevant to, to the topic, you know, get in front of the right demographic that way. Um, revamp job descriptions and include more feminine terms. I know that sounds yeah. really abstract right now, but we spoke about language earlier in the yeah. podcast, right? Um, and by the way, there are tons of professional companies that can help with, with this. So you know, outsource that if you can, because it's good to get an external point. Um, but if you're a company that wants to reach out to female candidates, for example, try using words like corporative, honest, loyal, 
and understanding in your job postings and perhaps like avoid phrases like requirements um the phrase requirements um which can drive women away that don't meet them 100%. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this thing where, you know, if you say requirements are X, Y, and Z, if a woman meets 80% of requirements, she feels like she's not necessarily qualified for the job. So she won't apply. So she won't apply. So you miss out on quite a lot of candidates. So kind of softening up the language with your, with your applications would be really useful. And there's no proof that shows that that will deter male candidates. Like, there's no proof that shows... So it can only be a good thing. <laughs> so it can literally only be a good thing. Um, and obviously like avoid other masculine words like competitive confident and outspoken mm. by the way this is very bl- a blanket approach I'm not saying all women will hate those words and all men will like those words it's just looking at it in a general perspective so I know I, that I've, I've, I've said this before and it's been quite controversial where, where women have come up to me saying I want to be competitive I am confident I'm not taking that away from, from, from you at all what I'm saying is to attract just a, a more mm. more women yeah. you're more likely to attract them with with slightly gentler, softer job descriptions and using words like cooperative, honest, loyal, which mm. attracts the, the feminine, essentially. Interesting. Yeah. And then, sorry, that's just one point. <laughs> um, then have like kind of an out-of-the-box mentality of where you source talent from. So a lot of companies, until very recently, and still do, you need a 2-1 Russell Group University or don't even bother applying, right? You're not attracting diverse candidates that way. You're literally looking at one box and even if people within those companies are from different genders and races, you're still you're not you're not really diverse in mindset or experience or socioeconomic background and so on. So think of out of the box ment- of mentalities like go into like disadvantaged schools, for example, try and nurture talent there. Uh, go into jails, you know, people have just come out of you know come mm-hmm. come out of prison, and there's there's so much statistics that show like people go to prison are generally quite very very intelligent they just which it was just channeled the wrong way there's entrepreneurship programs for people who just come out of jail um you know understand like you know where a lot of people with neurodiversity are so just Mm. kind of thinking really out of the box to you know to to meet your talent requirements if you really actually care about a diverse workforce and you're not just trying to take a take a diversity quota box um and then you know uncovering hidden biases in the recruitment process that's a really important point um, and then make diversity a business case by in- introducing key performance indicators to drive. But yeah, those those are how you improve diversity sourcing. You now you've got all. Let's let's say you've done all that. You've got all your candidates <laughs> and you've got your, all your diverse people that you want. Then what? Because if yeah. you don't do anything about that, if you're not aware of your diversity, they'll leave. Like I guarantee you, they'll leave. Right? Yeah. So inclusive inclusion isn't some glorified term that HR teams throw around okay it's real it matters whether you're from an organization that's 50% female 40% minority or even 50 55% white inclusion gives everyone the opportunity to contribute um and diverse perspectives and approaches can be discussed openly so I don't know if that makes sense but a woman in a male-dominated company should be able to disagree without being labeled you know the bossy word um, mm. A recent hire, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or origin, should be able to initiate something new without being told it's not the company way. Mm. No one is being told to conform, or no one's being told to be a cultural fit. So that's actually like inclusion, and there's invisible and visible inclusivity. So very visible inclusivity is things like having all gender-friendly bathrooms, you know, a space to disconnect if you're slightly more introverted, a nursing room for mothers. You're using gender-neutral language throughout company benefits and policies. 
understanding that you know not everyone drinks alcohol so don't have your workplace socials all about alcohol yeah you know executives and top management should reflect the diversity the organization seeks because then people from you know lower down can look up and actually see role models in themselves um, and then acknowledge all religious and cultural holidays celebrated by the organization's employees so those are just ways of like very visible inclusivity um, and invi- invisible exclusivity is i guess around the lines of um unconscious bias which i think you're yeah. quite aware of so maybe you should speak about yeah about that. Uh, absolutely so um mighty waters um was set up by anna and mark withers and they wrote a book called risky business mm. um and they developed together developed a really amazing framework called the hidden risk framework mm. which um is basically made up of eight characters and each of these characters embodies a bias cluster that we have so as an example one of the characters that i particularly relate to is the writer so um when you know throughout life whichever decision you're making you might write out a script of how that decision is going to go and you'll stick to that decision and you'll just write it all out you'll write out the your business plan for a year and you'll have it all in your head and you will determine your decisions around the script that you've already written out it's just a fantastic framework to help teams help individuals leaders understand and ask questions around those characters and recognizing them having a language to talk about saying oh are we being a bit like a captain here are we so fixed on Mm. this idea and not considering xyz um it just brings it alive and help because it's so difficult how do you make the invisible visible yeah it's it's so hard um but it's a fantastic framework um which you can definitely read up on more on the website Um, you so, just yeah. gave to me that book, so I'm going to be you know, <laughs> delving into that very deeply. So, I mean, do you, do you think it's even... We've just talked about, you know, the ideal, diverse and inclusive workplace. Like, do, you, do you think it's even achievable? I do think it's achievable. Um, I think that's my millennial, millennial optimism and naivety speaking, uh, maybe. But... Uh, I think there's enough people in the world who are quite passionate about this. And if you let the real drivers of change, who people who really care, be the drivers of this change within the organization and understand who those people are, put them in positions where they can start driving this change. So don't just get someone who's an HR leader who just has to do it because they need to tick a box. Identify within your organization who actually cares about, about these issues and get them to drive the change because that's when it's going to authentically be done. Um, there's frameworks, as you mentioned a framework, there's literal points that you can do to improve your diversity hiring process there's ways that you can become more inclusive so if you genuinely want to invest into that and i think you should for the business case more than anything then there's no reason for this not to be tackled yeah so and it's we're getting that way maybe i'm just honestly being optimistic but the people i've spoken to the dni leaders i speak to they do care and they they are making they're working towards it yeah and do you think as a millennial, being a millennial mm. has anything to do with your passion for it and your, yeah, your views on diversity? And- so yeah, as a millennial, we're definitely more open um, and we want more diversity around us because we live in a truly globalised world. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we travel a lot more, we're exposed to a lot more people from different cultures and backgrounds. Did you know, like, for example, 25% of all primary schools to UK right now so not London, the UK, are from ethnic minority backgrounds. One in four Whoa. people 
I did not realize that. Yeah. That just shows the state of the world that we live in right now. It's truly cosmopolitan. It's global. We've been, you know, exposed to it from a very young age. If you think about my school history, you know, so if you don't see that in the workplace, you actually don't feel at home. Yeah. So you're kind of like, oh, like, even if you're someone from not a minority background and you go into the workplace and there's no one from minority background, but you've grown up in London. Yeah. You're kind of like, that doesn't feel at home. That doesn't kind of reflect the workplace that I want. 100%. Yeah. And do you, do you think millennials, when they're looking at potential jobs or companies that they're wanting to work for, that they actually look at the diversity of this company, um, that they do their research around that, and that for them, that would be a real kind of draw or put off? Yes, and I can answer that with a statistic. Go on. Okay. <laughs> There's this article I read. The article was called Six Statistics That Will Convince You to Prioritize DNI uh, by uh, Melissa Susano on the Teamable blog. The first thing the article says is 67% of candidates want to join a diverse team. 67%. That's it. Yeah. Now, I don't know where they've done that research from, um, but it's a glass door kind of. Yeah. Uh, they've done it through glass door, so I don't know who they've asked specifically. Yeah. But that's still incredibly telling. Yeah. So you need people want to work in diverse teams. I mean, I know if I go into a company and I see a huge array of people, I'm already interested. My interest has been piqued. Actually, reflecting on the customer base thing again, if you're a global company, yet your team is made up of only British people who come from one class standing, and mm. you know, what is that really going to represent? You know, the reach that you have and all that absolutely so yeah i'm totally with you on this one are there any organizations mira that you would say in the digital sector who you would say role model a diverse and inclusive workplace really well oh that's a that's a tough question someone's gonna get a a free plug in here (laughs) (laughs) insert now (laughs) sponsored by Um, so I have worked with a, a wide range of companies in this space, um, but a company I genuinely think is doing quite quite some interesting stuff is um, PwC. Okay. Um, the reason being is they've launched this um, this this program, or it's a charter really. It's called the Tech She Can Charter. Okay. Um, and what it does is they're actually going into schools, um, and they've got about. A hundred odd companies signed up to this charter, tech companies around the UK. And they're basically bringing together people from different companies, um, going into schools and helping young girls to start coding from a young age. So breaking down the barriers of what being in the tech, being in, being being a techie really means. Um, so they're going to the root of the problem, which is that young age where girls get put off yeah. tech. Um, and they've done, there's a lot of research that they've carried out to back it. And they made it like a business objective. So people from all across the business have like are up championing this this charter. And they're not just doing it for themselves. They're getting all these organizations involved. Um, and I've personally been to one of their meetings where there's been, you know, fifty or sixty representatives from different companies coming together to really try and solve, you know, the future of tech talent. And it's not even like, you know, it's not gonna be the results aren't gonna be now, the results are gonna be ten years down the line. That's like a, me, a re, for me a really honourable thing for, for a big organisation to take a stand on. So that's one of the things they do, which I think is really exciting. But when you're talking about in the workplace currently, um, PwC also leads the way in demonstrating 
that proper a proper commitment to health and mental and mental well being in in the workplace. So they encourage um, you know, it, they encourage their staff to kind of take leave for for mental health purposes. They give an allowance to do things that would help them um, outside of the workplace. Um, and I think what this does is encourages performance. It 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 empowers in loyalty. It makes a better and more productive workplace. So mental health is something that's generally quite overlooked. Um, and just based on my research and what I've heard, I think PwC is take, taking some really good actions um, to ensure that they're, they're doing that. Um, that's not to say that no other company is. It's just something that's come come that's, to. That's something yeah. that just comes to mind based on what I've seen. Yeah. Um, they also do some really good stuff for for women coming back to work after after pregnancy. What do you think? is sort of the most important way to tackle this issue like moving forward yeah so the most imp- that's a hard question the most important thing that we need to do i don't think there is a most important thing i think you the pipeline is so huge and the problems are so vast that everyone needs to tackle that the problems in different ways depending on what they do so some people are going to tackle it in the boardroom um, you know, you're going to have organisations that are going to, you know, push more women or people from diverse backgrounds into the boardroom. You're going to have people trying to work on it at a senior management level. You're going to have people trying to work on it at a graduate level. That's all important. All of it comes together. All of it's going to create a more diverse workforce. Personally, what I think I want to do and I'm most passionate about and the most important issue for me is tackling this from the schools from, from a young age. Um, specifically... Uh, with social mobility, so going into disadvantaged schools um, and helping young children or young, or children is probably the wrong word, teenagers ages 13 to 17 um, and giving them access and the opportunity to be able to understand what a career in the digital sector could, could look like for them. Because what you think about when working for companies like PwC or Google, maybe not Google, but is that you need to be a certain level um, of intelligence or you've, you've got to come from a certain background or you've got to wear certain clothes you've got to speak a certain way um, and it's very unattainable because there's a lack of role models that reflect who they are as people so bringing in I think these big companies kind of what like what the Texas can charter is doing um, but going into schools particularly disadvantaged schools and empowering young people into the op- and giving them the opportunity to go work in the tech sector whether that's offering free coding um telling them to skip university altogether if it's not really for them and going into acceler- or going into apprenticeships and things like that um, where you can actually start building the talent pipeline of the future from y- for young people at disadvantaged schools. So I think that I think is the most important thing to tackle and that's how we're going to build a sustainable talent pipeline of the future from talent pools that we don't currently look at. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes yeah. complete but sense. But that's not saying that, you know, the other things people are doing across many other aspects aren't important. Like, I have a friend who's doing something really interesting in the mental health space. Yeah. There's companies that are, are putting autistic people into work, into, into tech jobs, and are helping them, you know, help, help helping with that. So dis, dis, we're looking at disabilities and mental disabilities. So it's all important. Everyone's got to understand what their passion is and then really Everyone work. plays their part. Yeah, play your part and work really hard on it. And that's kind of, that's really important. Yeah. yeah. So, if there were three things you would like listeners to leave with, um, mm. what would those three things be? I'm assuming our listeners are going to be like professional people in the workplace already, mm. or HR directors. Is that yeah, correct? Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. Cool. So, um, what I'd say then is number one, um, push and champion inclusive practices within your organisation, 
whatever level you are. So always take note if things don't quite feel right, if you don't think that your company is being inclusive and give that feedback to, to HR or whoever's relevant. No matter how small or big it is, that's going to make a huge impact because then you can start, start building a picture of what or how, how inclusive your company really is. Yeah. It's a hard conversation to have, but it's always better in the long run. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, and this is something I'm really passionate about, is think about how you make a difference to inspire the next generation. So whether it's through mentoring young people, um, you know, going into schools to run a session, um, anything you can really think of just to empower young people around you, whether it's your younger sister or a cousin or a friend's cousin or anything along those lines, do your part in empowering underrepresented young girls or people from minority backgrounds and showing them that the opportunity is available. Mm. Um, and number three, and this is a little bit more difficult, is try and be aware of your unconscious biases. Um, and that's inside and outside the workplace. And start to take micro actions against them. So be very critical of what you, how you are unconsciously biased towards things. And it's a really difficult thing to do, but then start noticing it and then yeah. changing that because it starts on a micro level um, mm. and the way you can do that is by just simply having a conversation with someone from a different background in your workplace asking them you know what is what is your experience like and then being very very aware of that yeah so yeah what do you what do you think yeah i mm. think those three points are excellent and yeah. um it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you Mira yeah and um all the best with um your new venture yeah thank you and um yeah thank you so much no thank you so much for having me I hope I haven't I've never done this before so I have no (laughs) idea how this is going to sound and I'm terrified of listening to my voice back so um yeah thank you so much for having me and yeah it's been it's been awesome it's been really fun So that was episode three with the lovely Mira. And if this is an area which you and your organisation need some help and support in, then here at Mighty Waters, we can assist in numerous ways. I touched on the hidden risk framework that Anna and Mark Withers, the founders and directors at Mighty Waters, developed together. If this is of more interest to you, you'd like to know a bit more about how you can apply the framework, you can get in contact with us via the website www.mightywaters.co.uk. You can find us on LinkedIn and message us directly or you can even listen to a podcast episode in our last podcast series, Debiasing Decisions, where Anna and I talk about diversity inclusion around applying the hidden risk framework in this area. So do give that a listen as well if that is of interest. Anyway, until next time for episode four on millennials and fitness, where I meet with Catherine Armitage and discuss the importance of fitness for this generation. So do listen to that. Until next time, work well.